Thanks, Jenny. Maybe this is a very appropriate passage given Wednesday. Not sure. <laughs> Be good for us to pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your presence with us. Thank you already for the way you've spoken to us and touched our hearts. And we thank you now in anticipation for the things you're going to say to us as we open your living word and read and hear your spirit speak to us. So give us those ears, Lord. Give us the ears that hear what the spirit is saying to the church, to us personally, in Jesus' name. Amen. Statistics. I don't know if you find them. Boring. Depends what they are. Some are boring. Some I find quite interesting. These ones, I think, given the uh, topic that we're talking about, what I want to share with you from God's Word, I found these quite interesting. And I'm not picking on the poor old Brits at the moment. This is what came up, though, and I found this British Association of Anger Management. These are the statistics that they discovered about anger in their nation. Here we go. You might be able to relate to some of this. 65% <laughs> of office workers have experienced office rage. 71% of internet users admit to having suffered net rage. In the European Union, Britain is the top road rage country. I thought Melbourne was. Sorry about that. There, were, there was a 400 increase in air rage between 1997 and 2000. Isn't it incredible? We've got names for all this type of rage that's going on. I thought there was only road rage. Now we've got all these other kinds of rages that are going on. And there's more. Did you know that there is car park rage? We've got guys in our church who surf. There is surf rage, I think they call it, or wave rage. I think it's surf rage. Get off my wave. I was on it first. I'll clob you with my surfboard type rage. This is actually going on. Britons, women, sorry, Britons, spend 407 hours per person per year shopping. Look at this. Over half have stormed out of a shop due to bad service and frustration. 64% either strongly agree or agree that people in general are getting angrier. Do you believe that? Accept that? Let me keep going. Depression which is a form of internal anger and anxiety have overtaken physical ailments as the chief cause of long-term illness. And then this one up here from the Anger Management Institute of Australia. They say, with stress levels, financial burdens, teen drinking and increased violence on television, and who knows what other things we could add to that list has increased in, has increased in the Australian community. So m anger is increasing in the Australian community as well as what they're saying. And sadly, we only have to look at the evening news to see how clearly uncontrolled anger so often leads to murder. And again, may our thoughts and our prayers continue to be with that family of that senior constable, Brett Fort, who was killed in the line of duty this week, not too far from here, by a very lost and angry man in possession of a gun. It's a very relevant topic, isn't it, that we're talking about this morning. 
Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And of course, Jesus was referring to the Ten Commandments in which it says of the Sixth Commandment, listed in, in Exodus 20 verse 13, you shall not murder. And of course that same commandment is repeated in Deuteronomy by Moses in Deuteronomy 5, 6. You shall not murder. And then it goes on, and if you did, and if you did murder, you would be subject to judgment, as Jesus says in that verse. Or in other words, to the local court is what he means there. And that was also part of the Old Testament law. For example, Numbers 35, 31, 30 to 31. Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer, only on the testimony of a witness, of witnesses. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Verse 31 of Numbers 35. Do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. They are to be put to death. Well, I'm not going to go talking about capital punishment and that sort of thing. But what I would say is this. The problem was, as the Lord Jesus exposes in this passage of Scripture here, was not with the commandments. It wasn't with the law. But it was what the Pharisees and the scribes did with the law. They, according to what uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he says they were always guilty of reducing the meaning and even the demands of the law. And so for, in this context, in this context that we're looking at this morning, the religious leaders would teach that as long as you did not actually commit the act of murder, all was well with you. And as most of these Pharisees and religious leaders could do, you could stand up and say, well, I have kept, a bit of pride, you know, a bit of pride. I have kept and fulfilled the requirements of the law. I have not actually physically done these things. I have not murdered. However, Jesus, who is both the author and the fulfilment of the law, teaches the truth behind the law by saying in verse 22, but, he says, I tell you, I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. So, Jesus now introduces to us this internal emotional state that every single one of us as human beings experiences. Let's be honest, it's called anger. Not a person sitting here today would not have experienced this internal emotion. And in this context, this context, Jesus puts it in the same category as murder. How many of us have experienced anger in one way or another this week? Maybe even today, coming to church. And how many of us nearly, really need to be praying that prayer? Lord, I really do need your help. Really, I need your help. John Piper in his book, uh, What Jesus Demands from the World, he says this. 
Jesus is saying that the external act of murder is wrong and more radically that the internal experience of anger behind it is wrong. So he demands along with the law of Moses that we not do the external act of murder but he goes further and demands that we not feel the internal emotion of anger that lies behind the act. This is what he's really saying. I love what C.H. Spurgeon also says about this. He simply says, The Lord calls us to account as much for the angry feelings as for the murderous deed. So true, isn't it? Well, as we move on here, Jesus then speaks about a brother or sister in verse 22. And though it does mean a, 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 a further sorry, a fellow believer or disciple in this context. It's not only meaning that. It's not only to mean a fellow believer or a relative. And therefore, if it did mean that, well, then it must be okay to be angry with anyone else outside of that category. You see, it also means, I suggest, it also means your neighbour. As the parable of the Good Samaritan talks about. It really means any other human being that God brings across your path. And some versions, it's, other, it's also interesting just to note in this particular verse, some versions, such as the uh, King James, for example, also includes the words without a cause at the end of verse 22. So it would read, for example, where am I? So it would read this. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister without a cause, some versions say that, but most of them don't. And one of the reasons for this, as some of the Bible scholars say, was that it still would not justify the anger that Jesus is condemning in this passage, even if there was a cause. It doesn't justify this anger that Jesus is talking about. And the word raka, which is an interesting word. Anyone heard that? I think Australians could find a few other words that would mean the same. But this word raka that Jesus uses in this verse 22 literally means empty. It means empty-headed. It means a worthless person. It's an Aramaic term of abuse. You idiot. Or you fool. And what we need to, to note with a big difference, of course, is that Jesus himself actually used the word. He did use the word fool. In fact, the word's mentioned a few times in the New Testament. Jesus used that word, for example, when he was rebuking the religious leaders. In Matthew 23, 17, he says, You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple, that makes the gold sacred. Again, we know the words used by God when he speaks to the blind, when he, sorry, he speaks to the, the rich fool in the parable of the, of the rich fool in Luke 12 and 20. So the words used, but the big difference is that his anger, his anger, God's anger, Christ's anger, was always a righteous anger. It was a righteous anger. It was right, never wrong. For Jesus is without fault, without any imperfection, without sin. So what he said was right and true. So different to what we often say and think. 
Christian psychologist and counsellor Gary Collins, he says, divine anger is intense, controlled, and consistent with God's love and mercy. It is anger directed both at sin and at people who are sinners. Repeatedly, God was angry with the unfaithful Israelites. Jesus, whose wrath is clearly seen in Mark chapter 3, was angry at the hard hearts of the religious leaders of his day. You and I have the right to express our God-given righteous anger. For example, we have the right to express this righteous indignation, this righteous anger, for example, at, at just injustice that's being done, for the oppression of those who are unable to defend themselves. What about those who are bullied, perhaps for the bully himself? There's a righteous indignation about that. What about domestic violence? We have the right to have a righteous anger about that. And no doubt there are so many other examples that we could think of where it is right and necessary to express righteous anger for something. As parents, we have the right to express righteous anger towards our own children who have chosen to walk a path of rebellion and destructiveness in their lives. We have a right to be angry and to bring that anger to God. Because does it not also drive us to our knees and in, to God in prayer when we see these things happening and they touch our hearts? And we come to God desperately in prayer and recognising our total helplessness and our absolute dependency on him. And again, as they say, if you've got kids, well, it'll enrich your prayer life. Isn't that so true? It sends you grey or bald or both but it will enrich your prayer life. Again, John Piper, he has some interesting things, challenging things to say. Let me, let me read you some challenging princ a principle of, of righteous anger. He says this, for human anger to be good, it must be governed by love for those who make us angry. Goodness, what a challenge that is. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is still Piper's quote. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. These commands exert a controlling effect on the nature of our anger. They tell us that legitimate anger may not delight in or desire the damnation of the ones who make us angry. If our anger is going to be good, it must be governed by our obedience to the command to bless and to pray for those to do good, pray for, pray for and to do good to those who make us angry. It's a challenge, isn't it? Don't we need the Lord to help us? He is our helper. We need him to live like this. We need his spirit to control us, not self to control. So righteous anger does, and it must have a legitimate place in our lives. I don't think there'd be too many aid agencies operating in the world if it wasn't for people who are angry at poverty, angry at injustice, 
And they rose up and did something about it because that righteous anger got them to do it. And so many of these places exist. However, however, the anger that Jesus is addressing in this passage from the Sermon on the Mount is an attitude of angry contempt which highlights the sinfulness of the human heart. So those words again, the words raka and fool that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 5.22, what the problem really is with this, it's not so much the words, but it's what's behind the words. It comes from the kind of heart condition where there is a settled anger, where there is a, a malice that's, that's continually fed and nursed inwardly. It's toxic. One, one commentator calls it toxic sludge. If you allow that stuff to stay in your heart, it's out of the abundance of the, mouth, does the, of the heart does the mouth speak. We've got to be careful what we nurse inside our hearts because Jesus can see that and that's what's behind the viciousness of some of the words that come out of our mouths. And a person who lives in this condition really is in a bad, sad way. They're not in a good place. Who has a heart condition like this. And then when you get people who profess faith in God, but you're listening and you're seeing the evidence of this anger that's coming out of them. And someone says, yeah, I love God. I tell you what, it'd be pretty questionable. And I say that because look what Jesus says about this. He goes and he says this in the same verse, they, those that do this, he says they will be in danger of the fires of hell. And a believer, a true believer who has names written in heaven and knows Jesus, they are not in danger of the fires of hell. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who is Jesus talking about then? With this kind of attitude, this heart condition. And the Apostle John says it in a similar way. Listen to what he says. 1 John 3.15 Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. That's powerful stuff, isn't it? This is anger. And before we move on from here, I want, to, I want to give you some brief practical suggestions that I have found, very personally, found very helpful for me in dealing with anger. Let me give you to them. must move through them fairly quickly. Very quickly, actually. I'm going to say it real quick. quick. First of all, commit your life to Christ. Many of you have done that here already, but there are some of you who may not have. That's the start. That's where you've got to start. Nothing works for you unless you first give your life to Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, you need to know that you will not find lasting, true peace and contentment and settledness in your heart apart from a relationship with the God who made you for himself. You won't find it in anything else. He gave himself for you when he died on the cross for your sins. So that you would not be in danger of the fires of hell. He's delivered you from that when you give your life to Jesus Christ. Salvation, my dear brother or sister, is a choice that only you can make. If you haven't made it, make sure you make it today before you walk out of this auditorium. 
Secondly, commit, your, commit to daily meditating on God's word. Daily meditating on his word. Let the word of God bathe you, feed you, wash you, guide you. The psalmist says in Psalm 119 verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We live in a very dark and angry world and we need God's word to light the way ahead for us every day. We need his word not only to guide us, which God's word does so beautifully, but it also supplies our daily needs. He's the bread of life for us. He's the living water. He counsels us spiritually. He embraces us emotionally. And as we, as we take him at his word and we apply his word, his practical truths to everyday life, we need to do that, my friends. We need to meditate daily on his word. Number three, purge anger from your everyday life. I think these ones are up on the slide there. Uh, this is a girl. Purge anger from your everyday life. Don't nurse grudges. We've just been talking about that. Don't nurse grudges. Don't nurse bitterness. Get rid of the root of bitterness that, that can form in your life. Get rid of them quickly. Settle accounts quickly. Learn to say sorry. Fight pride and say sorry. That one little word has a powerful way of healing relationships when it comes from your heart. Say sorry. Ephesians 5, 4, 26, 27. This actually happens to be on the front of your bulletin today. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold because he wants to get a foothold in your anger. Don't give him that place. Get rid of the anger. Let Jesus cleanse you from that, wash you from it. We all need to ask the Lord, as the psalmist did, to serve, to search our hearts so that anger or anything else offensive to God will be removed. Psalm 139, I love that psalm. Verses 23, 24. Pray this with all your heart, my friends. Search me, O God. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's saying, God, I don't want that toxic muck in my life. Get rid of it. Search me. See if there's anything in me, Lord, that offends you. I don't want it. I want a full-on relationship with you. Let nothing come between the fellowship that we have. Search my heart. Get rid of anger, Lord. Pray a prayer like that. It'll change your life. Fourthly, moving on quickly, cultivate close, close friendships. We all need to have a place where we can feel safe to share the good times and the bad times. We need a place where we can feel safe to share, listen, to share, not to blame the things that do make us angry. And without being judged by those people, that's what our life groups need to be there for. A place that's safe, a place where you can be vulnerable, a place where you can say, you know what, I've really had a tough week, I've been angry. Where you can share some of these things. Galatians 6.2, carry each other's burdens and in this way you'll fulfil the law of Christ. Carry one another's burdens. That's what we need to be doing as the body of Christ. Not judging someone, not blaming someone, listening, bearing one another up, praying for each other, encouraging each other. Number five, forgive those who hurt you and cause you to become angry. 
Forgive those who are in that place. Forgive those who hurt you and cause you to become angry. That leads me on to this next passage, which I'm going to be really pushing to get through. Therefore, if, you, if you're off, this is verses 23, 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go first and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Bible commentator A. Knowles, he says this, we must tackle our anger by forgiving each other. Even if we are at the most sacred moment, poised to offer a gift to God, forgiveness is more important. We must leave our gift and make peace with the person with whom we are so angry. And you know, in a practical illustration, I guess, is if you come to church, you walk in the door of the church or up, you know, you come to church and you have an angry exchange with somebody here in the church. You're coming to worship God, but already something has sparked you and you have expressed something angry to that person. Or if you come and your attitude is angry towards somebody. You must put that right with the person, if the person knows about that. You've got to put it right before you can even engage in worship with God. You try to do that, you come to church with an attitude like that, where you've just been angry with somebody... It won't feel right, it won't be right as you try to worship God. The Pharisees tried to do that. The Pharisees were more concerned with the external appearances than they were with the true internal condition of their heart. And they would seek to cover their anger with someone, not by going to that person putting it right, but forgetting that. They would try to bring a sacrifice and make atonement to God first. But the Lord says differently. Jesus says, forgive your brother or sister first. And then come and offer your offering to God. And that's the meaning of verse 24. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. I like what Albert Barnes says. He doesn't pull any punches here. He's got some strong words. Listen to this. He or she that comes to worship his maker or maker filled with malice and hatred and envy and at war with his brethren is a hypocritical worshipper and must meet with God's displeasure. God is not deceived and he will not be mocked. Spurgeon says the rule is first peace with man and then acceptance with God. Peace being made with our brother or sister. Then let us conclude our service toward our father and we shall do so with a lighter heart and truer zeal. Isn't that true? Why is that? Well, simply because in your obedience, the burden of anger and the unforgiveness is now lifted from you. You've confessed it. You've put it right. It's now lifted from you by the God who has forgiven you and filled you with his peace. Again, real quick, I want to talk about three practical things very quickly that I have also found very helpful when it comes to forgiveness. Here we go. I'm going 100 mile an hour, I know that. Let's just listen to what God's saying. hope this is helpful to you as it was for me. It's for me. Firstly, forgiveness. These are three practical things. Forgiveness is completely up to you. What I mean by that is simply this. It doesn't depend on the other person first apologising to you before you can forgive. You're the one who needs to forgive. True forgiveness, by God's grace and his enabling, can and it ought to forgive even those who remain unrepentant towards you. 
You see that? It's, it's, it's for your benefit. Forgiveness is for your benefit. It's not theirs. It's for your fellowship, your relationship with God that you forgive that brother or sister. And you know what? They may not have even known that they've offended you. But you've got to forgive them. And they may never, even if they have offended you, they may never come to you and apologise. You still need to forgive them for your benefit, for your own fellowship with Jesus. Secondly, forgiveness does not equal reconciliation. It doesn't mean that you're going to get back with that person and be on the same uh, fellowship with that person. It doesn't mean you're going to be besties with them anymore. That may never happen. Particularly in the case where there's been abuse. If you've been the victim of abuse, for the sake of your own recovery, for your own health and your well-being, there needs to be forgiveness of the perpetrator, as hard as that is. You need to forgive that person. But listen, reconciliation will not be an option necessarily. Re reconciliation will be inappropriate and unwise in the majority of cases. I'm not saying it'll never happen, but it, it, forgiveness does not mean that you have to be reconciled to that person. Because it may not be appropriate. Thirdly, forgiveness is an ongoing process. Some of you have been hurt pretty badly and there's not too many of us that can, that can forgive and then be completely set free from any further thought of that offence that was committed against us. And when those painful thoughts and memories return, we need to keep on confessing and confirming before God that we have forgiven that person. Because they will come back. Not too many of us can switch off and say, oh, that's gone, now forgotten, move on. So depending on what's happened to you, depending how deep that wound is, those memories and that painful thinking will still return and the anger that's associated will well up in you and you've got to keep saying, Lord, I confess that I have forgiven that person. I forgive that person. And you need to say that, brothers and sisters, maybe over and over again. And you seek the Lord and in the process of doing that, it will eventually, as we persevere in the Lord, lead to peace with the past. And the pain won't be there anymore. But you need to keep on doing it. Forgiveness is an ongoing process. Finishing with this verse and then a quote. Colossians 3.13 Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Can you say amen to that? And then one, one author by the name of William Arthur Ward, he says this, We are most like beasts when we kill. We are most like men when we judge. We are most like God when we forgive. Amen. We won't have the final song, guys. Thank you. Sorry, gone too long. But I will pray and uh, we'll finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, even though I've rushed it a bit, but... God, you're not going to rush with us. And I just pray that something of what you've said will penetrate our hearts and hear, help us to move on as people of God so that we're not caught in this trap of anger and unforgiveness. But that, Lord, that you'd meet us 
and do those things in our hearts that only you can do by your spirit. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for your healing. Continue to do that work in us, we pray. As we press on with you, Lord, as we do life together with you, Lord, thank you that you're there for us all the time. You are our help, an ever-present help, times of trouble. We thank you. We commit each other to you. Pray you'd be with us now and throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.